Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. Uh, Julie, tell me this. Have you ever turned to... I, I know sometimes it's difficult to find babysitters at yeah. you know, the last minute, but have you ever turned to the Roomba? Uh, I've thought about it. I mean, it, obviously I thought about my cat first mm-hmm. and then the Roomba because I thought, you know, what she could herd my daughter. I mean, she's a two-year-old toddler running around. Yeah. She, the Roomba could just chase her around. It would be it's no a, big deal. Is the cat a female? Male. Well... Still, I mean, male cats are at least used to batting, you know, little kittens around and keeping them in line, right? So Right, yeah. right. Yeah, between the Roomba and my cat, Owen, I think it could work. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the cat discipline and the, the Roomba can just sort of lay out rooms and occasionally bump into the child and, and let it know that it's loved, right? Exactly. Yeah, there, there would be that interaction. It would be really enriching for my daughter, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is exactly the thing that we're going to talk about for uh, 20 minutes or so here. Sweet. Uh or or longer, I don't know. And and that's going to be: Can we turn to machines to to babysit children, to raise children, to uh, to just you know? Can we just pretty much hand them off to robots at birth, or 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 will robots be doing the delivery as well? Who knows? And uh, and yeah. is this a cool idea? Is this a frightening prospect for the future? I don't know. I mean, sometimes I wonder if we're entering into the winter of our robot discontent. Yeah. Because I mean, it's a little bit. Yeah, you know, robots uh, rearing a child could be a little bit scary. Yeah, and and yet it's it's one of those things like we were talking about yesterday about just about robots. Like, what can a robot not do? You know, it, it seems nothing. Like, do we get enough negatives into that, into that <laughs> for you? Um, there's um, we're just constantly dreaming up. We've been we've just been dreaming up ways that they can enter our lives and take over different responsibilities for ages. I mean, the the, the term robot comes from I believe the Czech. Uh, word for um, for slave for something right. you know it's it's very tied to the idea of let's make something that'll do things that I don't want to do. So child rearing, uh, you know, it, we sort of reach there, um, reach that point by default. But we've 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 already handed off a, a lot of our labor to robots. The, the vacuuming, for instance, right? Um, a lot of industrialized uh, functions. Um, we're we're making a lot of headway uh, when it comes to surgery. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, robots have been able to demonstrate the ability to uh, to compose music, to create art. There is a uh, th- play th- Jeopardy. Play Jeopardy. Uh, is that going on right now? Uh, I think it it's about to. to. I think okay. it's around the corner. They can already beat me at Scrabble pretty easily mm-hmm. if my uh, iPhone is in any indication. So um, can they raise children? I mean, it's not so much a stretch, right? I mean, yeah. okay, think about right now. Television, iPad, iPod. I mean, there's a ton of things that we use to. Some of us, and I'm guilty sometimes, um, for the computer to put our kid in front of and, and sort of babysit it for a couple minutes, right? Right. Um, so it's not too much of a stretch of the imagination that you would use a robot in that it actually may be enriching and actually may be programmed to actually teach your children stuff, right? Yeah. It's like, like Teddy Ruxpin, right? Teddy Ruxpin was like a, a robot <laughs> cuddly bear that you just put a, a tape cassette in its, uh, right. stomach and then it would, uh, blurt out, uh, all sorts of wonderful, entertaining stuff, right? It, it was super creepy at the same time, right? So, <laughs> yeah, which I guess is the whole point of this. So, there's also the idea that once you introduce technology into the mainstream, we're not really going to go back, right? Like we're going, we're not going to quit using our iPods or our iPads to entertain our children from time to time. 
Um, if we have a robot introduced as a, a babysitter, mm-hmm. most likely we're not going to back off of that anytime soon. And in fact, this is happening, right? Like, yes. Well, um, in Japan, in Japan, where robots are everywhere, um, they're uh, because they have a rich tradition of 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 loving robots. They've been yes. far more into sci-fi than, uh, than than we are as a, as a nation for for ages. They've they've grew up with they have all these guys that grew up with the dream of robots, and, and they they all talk about it in interviews. They, they grew up watching like robots on, on cartoons, yeah. and then they get into robotics, and they're creating that vision, sort of piece by piece. You know, nobody's creating you know whammo. Here's a robot human that does all the things a human does, but but like literally any tiny. Or even large, even some more complicated tasks that you can think of. Mm-hmm. Like there's this huge uh, uh, food, uh, food uh, industrialized food uh, uh, convention that happens in Tokyo every year. And like there, you can go and you can see robots uh, making sushi, robots, uh, you know, frying up uh, pancakes. Yeah, and don't they 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 offer you the food and say stuff like it is delicious, right? Like, yes, and, I mean, and they that, interact with everybody. Yeah, yeah. That's the of course that's the other huge. Um, uh, thing in robotics is is making uh, robots that can interact with us and can uh, and can interact with a human environment, uh, socially intelligent machines. Okay. Uh, but but uh, in in Japan there are two uh, particular examples of, uh, of 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 these robots that have come out that are that are very much in line with the idea of a robot uh, nursemaid or a robot babysitter. Uh, one is Reba. Uh, that's R I B A, not like not to be confused with a country singer, right? And it, it doesn't have a big shock of red hair on no, top or anything. No, And it's but it does look like a giant, uh, very cute, very cartoony, very uh, kawaii. I believe is the term. Yeah, kawaii. that's the, the cuteness yeah. factor. Yeah, very, very, very cute looking. Looks like a giant teddy bear, except it's you know it's not soft. It's kind of hard looking, but yeah. it can lift patients. In fact, uh, it can. Uh, it's designed. To uh, lift up to 134 pounds of uh, of like old person from a chair, I guess, and or, this is or a child. This is the the robot that's like 400 pounds, right? Yeah, 400 I mean, pounds. Without the giant, cute face, it would look horribly menacing, right? Coming yeah. at you to pick you up. Yeah. So I guess that's the point of putting the kawaii face all over it. Yeah, and and you know, it's like very. It's that that Hello Kitty thing. If if anybody's <laughs> having trouble like picturing this, just Hello Kitty. Uh, everywhere, and but but even in Japan, they recognize that that kawaii can be creepy because they have the whole uh, kawaii noir um, uh, thing going on. No, where get out! Like, no, no, seriously, it's like they have uh, it's like cute stuff, but it's also like really grim. Um, uh, I wish I could think. There's a there's an artist by the name of Junko or Junkyo. Okay, uh, I'll have to link to it on the blog post that goes with this. But she. Um, She's really heavy into like creating these cute things, but they're all like doing horrible things as well. Or uh, Gloomy Bear is an example. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. All right. So, um, but Reba is not gloomy. Reba is very happy looking and has these big padded claws to lift uh, people and things. Um, another example is uh, there is a uh, there's a major retailer in Japan uh, called a uh, called Eon Company. Yeah, sort and, of like a Macy's or yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. And of course, you, you go shopping. You have kids with you. You want to, you know. Put the kids somewhere while you shop. It's like, like here, they do it at Ikea all the time, right? You have the Ikea Playland where you drop the kids off and then either go shop or, or like you've su- uh, suggested, go to work for the day, right? Right. And then come back to Ikea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. was my other choice <laughs> childcare. So, uh, the, the, uh, the, the company T-Musk, uh, came up with this, uh, this robot that, uh, looks kind of like a large, like yellow and white appliance with kind of a wally head on top, you know? Yeah. Got very cute. Uh, and, uh, and it can, uh, it can interact with the children by, like, each child will have, like, a badge. 
on uh, on his or her shirt. And the the robot can like scan that badge and it'll know to interact with this person with its limited vocabulary. So it'd be like, hello, Robert. Yeah. Uh, hello, Robert. Your parents are totally coming back. You know, things ha, like ha, that. Ha. Yeah. <laughs> and and then the the, the the other awesome thing is it has two uh, two eyes. One of the eyes can be used to project advertisements yeah. at the child. And the other is uh, is a camera so it can like record things and then play them back for the kid. OK, so that's the super scary part, right? It's yeah. not even that it's robot interacting with your kid. It's that it's beaming like McDonald's advertisements at your child and taking pictures of it. At the same yeah. Time. Yeah. Like I'm thinking of the scene from the Dark Crystal where the, the they strap the little uh, gelfling in the chair and mm-hmm. then like the laser goes right into his eyes or sort of a clockwork orange kind of thing yeah with cute robots and, and little japanese kids okay so it's there it's in existence japan yeah. is exploring it and obviously um you know that the technology is going to be slower to creep into the u.s for mm-hmm. instance um in the west but it's it, there's no denying it it's it's possible um and at some point we're probably going to be using this technology to interact with our children if not babysit at least teach them right Right. But what are, I mean, we've talked about operating rooms. Um, we've got the Da Vinci robot, right? That, that, um, surgeons are using. Uh huh. Okay. And, uh, yeah, in 2009 alone, uh, 73,000 American men, uh, underwent robot assisted prostate surgery. Yikes. So, I mean, it's robot assisted. It's not like, uh, you know, go in, drop your pants and a robot. Die. I mean, it's, it's robot assisted. It's, uh, somehow yeah. that, Drop your pants just threw me. Okay. Um, I think what's cool about that too, um, not the drop your pants part, but the, the robotic assistance is that it's got tremor control on it, right? So yes. if, you know, if the sur- it sort of recalibrates for any errors that the surgeon might make in terms of the tremor that they're using to control it. Yeah, and, and generally with robotic uh, surgery, you're dealing with smaller incisions, a lot, a lot smaller yeah. scale opera, because nobody's having to like get their hand in there. Yeah, know? yeah. And it's 3D vision, so you, you're able to actually Look at the area that you're operating on in a in a fuller way. Correct. Right. Yeah. So that's a plus. That's a that's great robotics. Yay. Um, and then uh, you spoke of the Reba, mm-hmm. and then there's also the the um, Cody the sponge bath robot. Oh yes, Cody. Yeah, who works with the elderly, mm-hmm. and it can open doors and drawers and cabinets <laughs> and and give you a sponge bath. I think it meant like, uh, like just it figuratively can open doors. Like it just opens doors for itself by administering sponge baths. Oh yeah. Like to really important people. Right. Things, just weird things start happening. Yeah. Next yeah. thing you know, it's, uh, it's no longer working in the hospital. It's got a, it's got a secretarial position uptown. And yeah. why not? I mean, who, who doesn't need a sponge bath at work sometimes? <laughs> um, and then there's the baby seal para. Have you seen this one? Oh, uh, yeah. I think I, I saw, um, Noel Sharkey referring to this. Okay, yeah, yeah, right. And this is a, it's a little baby seal, right? And it interacts with you. So if you look at it, it starts cooing at you. And they're actually using it with Alzheimer's patients. Um, and, and, and they think that it's really helpful for the patient to bond with the animal and it's therapeutic. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's that. Yeah, but I like the idea of them just having cats and dogs. I mean, that's, that's been pretty successful in, in various uh, nursing homes. Yeah, I mean, we know if you pet an animal that it already is going to lower your heart rate. Yeah. And you probably can tell your secrets to that cat or dog and, you know, interact with it. But I guess what the thing about the seal is that it does, maybe, maybe your cat runs away like mine does, right? Mm-hmm. The seal will actually interact with you and sort of encourage you to, to have that bond as if it's listening to you or understanding you. Yeah. And I won't say go to sleep on somebody's face. And yeah, yeah, it won't pop a squat on your face, yeah. which is always good. Um, and then we actually 
talked about this robot before. It's Roxy the sex bot. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Roxy. Yeah. With three X's. Yeah, three X's in case you didn't already yeah. get that. Or maybe more. I don't know. At this point, they may have added more X's. Yeah, you know? yeah. Um, the, the, the newer model. But she's, you know, she costs $9,000. She's anatomically correct. She, You can program her. She can interact with you. Again, here's the technology in use right yeah. now. Yeah, and um, and there's another actually interesting example. Um, Tokyo University um, of Science uh, professor uh, Hiroshi Kobayashi in uh uh, 2009, uh, he, uh, was working on a, um, a classroom robot named Saya. And, uh, they were experimenting with using a robot teacher in mm-hmm. the front of the class. Uh, and uh, this was not, you know, they didn't like roll in the teacher and, and like let it loose to teach an entire year or anything. They just sort of tested it out. And, uh, and, you know, it wasn't really capable of doing much beyond calling roll and, uh, shushing children. <laughs> uh, and, and, and obviously this would not work in some of like America's worst, uh, schools. Uh, no. <laughs> just be, un- un- unless it like actually had like missile launchers or something. But, um, but it's another example of people are figuring it out. They're like, how can we take a machine? How can we program it to interact with children to teach them and maintain their attention and, um, uh, and, uh, make them behave? Well, and I think that's, that's, a, that's where the worth maybe comes in when you're talking about robots and children mm-hmm. is this idea that they can teach children, particularly like toddlers, um, because repetition is so important when you're learning, not just throughout your life, but at those early stages. So, um, having a robot, um, interact with a child, particularly with a child with autism mm-hmm. is actually, it's found, found to be pretty helpful. There's a two foot tall robot named Neo and Neo can introduce himself, extends his hand for a shake and announces that children like to play with him. So he's already putting that idea in the kid's brain and it can take a bow. Mm-hmm. That's what you want every robot to do. Um, uh, performs Tai Chi routines with accompanying music. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, but m- more importantly, it can be programmed to incrementally increase the complexity of its routines over time. So as the children progress through therapy, um, it actually helps them to go to different levels. And so if you think of an autistic child, they actually, they need to log a lot of hours of therapy. And this is where I think robots can actually be really helpful because that it's pretty intensive, right? The, the sort of therapy that a, a child with autism needs. So you can have, you can program this robot to work with that child over and over again. Again, that repetition, the, the burrowing of that neural pathway to learn a certain task. And that can be helpful. I mean, not just for a child with autism, but, you know, for a young two, three-year-old who is doing something over and over again, robots may be the way to go. I mean, of course you still need the the human element and human interaction, but that sort of technology I think is pretty intriguing. This presentation is brought to you by Intel, sponsors of Tomorrow. Now, uh, one thing about this uh, particular study, I found a, a quote where they mentioned that uh, children, the children are not only connecting with the robot, but also with the tester who controls the robot, right? Yeah. Uh, and They're both sharing this novel experience. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, that kind of, I mean, not to complete, I'm not poo-pooing the idea, but just playing devil's advocate here, you're, you're still not talking about a robot, like, completely taking on this child. There's a human in the mix, which it, is kind of yeah. like, it's. I mean, uh, if that is a robot teaching a child, then is dad working on a uh, remote control truck with his uh, son is that 
uh, a robot teaching a child? Mm, That's a good question. I think more specifically with the kids with autism, what they were thinking is that um, the children are responding well to the robots because they can predict the robot's behavior. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there's there's, uh, an adult human with them. But the sort of interaction that they're having with that robot, it, they and, and some of this is speculative, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but they think that there's a comfort level and that they can say, okay, well, humans, I can't, I don't always know what they're about to do. But this robot is, it is so repetitive. Yeah. And it's teaching these these things and I'm really responding to it. That's the idea behind it. Yeah. And, I mean, we, we can't mention any of this without talking about uh, our just ridiculous ability to anthropomorphize anything everything yeah like um uh, like if anybody out there uh watches a uh, community um i think it's the first episode where jeff winger uses the example of uh of you, you name a pencil uh like this pencil's name is carl or whatever and then you snap it in half and everybody's gonna feel a little part of themselves <laughs> die yeah because it, i mean that's all it takes it's like two two dots in a line makes a face and right. we can instantly associate with it you know if uh it's 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 just completely rampant everywhere. Well, yeah. So it's it's just ridiculous. Like like the idea that a person could could feel like a machine is a robot is real and uh, and is and and actually maybe even feels for them. Uh, you know, I that's that's just a no brainer because I mean we do that all the time with things that uh, well like dogs and cats. You know, right? It's like does my cat actually love me? Well, no, not really. But but there, I mean, there's a bond there, but it's not. It's not. I, I definitely anthropomorphize it. I make more of it out of it than it is, and I sort of willingly partake uh, of this this worldview, this fiction that I create, in which my my cat thinks more of me than, say, just a warm food provider. Oh yeah, I mean, I think we do it all the time, and we don't even know. Like I've noticed that our IT mastermind um, Izzy like will refer to my computer as her. <laughs> all, all the time, and I think yeah. it's really sweet. Like, she, she's great. Don't worry about her. She's in good hands. And I'm like, oh. oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, you're right. We can't help it. And we have mentioned Sherry Turkle before. She's the uh, psychologist at MIT who mm-hmm. was there at the forefront of um, robotics uh, development there and social robotics, right? Right. And she has talked about how there, there's a sort of cautionary tale here because we can't help but connect with another um, thing and and describe it as having some sort of humanness. And she saw that over and over again with their studies, particularly with children mm-hmm. and even adults, that the most basic primitive robot, someone might come away feeling like they had some sort of deep um, relationship with that robot. And yeah. she herself had developed one, uh, a, a sort of crush on a robot um, <laughs> oh, yeah, cog so, there. Yeah, I think you mentioned this in the previous podcast. Yeah, she, Love, yeah. Hate, and Robots. Yeah. yeah. And... Uh, she cites, though, specifically this robot named Kismet that worked a lot with children. Mm-hmm. And she talks about how uh, the kids would interact with Kismet. And one day, Kismet malfunctioned. Uh, killed a child. Killed yeah. a child. That's right. And this was the 12-year-old child. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the child thought that Kismet was rejecting her. Mm-hmm. Now, there are there's another adult there. Sharing the same experience. The child didn't actually die. No, the child okay. did not die. In fact, she got so upset and she just thought that uh, she'd done something to um, make the robot hate her. that She started stuffing her face full of snacks <laughs> and crying. So, I mean, she may have had a, like a food disorder after yeah. that. Um, but <laughs> to your point, though, about having the shared experience, right? There, mm-hmm. There's another adult there and that adult is saying, no, 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 it's, it's you know, Kismet is broken. It's not you. And yet she's the one that goes away feeling like 
she's done something to this robot. And, she, and this is what Sherry Turkle says is the problem, is that we're ascribing all this meaning to something that can't relate back to us, that doesn't have the sort of uh, nuance or social uh, socialization, that sort of context to mm-hmm. actually interact with us in a meaningful way. Yeah, like it can, at a certain extent, that the fiction can fall apart that, that you create. Mm-hmm. I mean, at least with, with animals, there's a, I mean, there's definitely a bond there and you're just kind of, Right. You're, you're putting a whole bunch of layers over it. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, with the, with the robot, it becomes a little more tricky. But, um, I mean, I also can't help but think of puppetry when we talk about any of this, you know? Oh, yeah. It, yeah. And, I mean, we're talking about like one person using a machine to interact with a, a second person. Okay. And I mean, the, the medium of puppetry is essentially one person using, um, a, a puppet, a, False little creature uh, right. on the end of their hand or hanging from some strings, etc., to uh, to interact with a person or a group of people. Um, there was uh, there was some study we were talking about the other day about uh, 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 children observing like a robot acting uh, badly, I believe. Oh yeah, actually it wasn't a it was a puppet show. Oh, it was a puppet show. Yeah, yeah they yeah. were trying to figure out whether or not eighteen month old eighteen month old children had the ability to sniff out right and wrong. So they watched like a Punch and Judy show, right? Yeah, exactly. And they're exactly. like, that punch is horrible. Yeah, they really, the, there was like maybe a rabbit that would come and uh, yeah. there were three characters and one was a rabbit, I think. And the rabbit was all pulling all sorts of shenanigans <laughs> and not acting nice. And so um, the child actually would react pretty strongly to that rabbit and not like it. I mean, it was it was obvious in every single uh, case that the kid was like, oh, no, that rabbit's up to no good. Huh. So, yeah, I mean, the kid has the capacity for that sort of, um, I guess you could even say empathy, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, some, some form of empathy anyway. I, I understand that there's a lot of stuff real, still taking hold in the uh, early stages, but, but there I mean, is, but there's a lot more that they're discovering that, mm-hmm. that babies and toddlers are, um, able to detect and process. Mm-hmm. Um, that we, sometimes we think that we're just faking it until we make it. Right. Yeah. Um, but there may be some sort on some sort of level saying, well, that's just not good. You know, yeah. that darned rabbit. No, it's, I mean, sometimes we use that stuff to explain away, uh, why, why little kids are such, uh, brats, you know? So it's kind of like if they're, if they really can empathize, then they're just all the more horrible. They really are that selfish. <laughs> well, you know, you kind of, you, I mean, there's the theory that kids are little monsters, right? Or yeah. little creatures. And they have to learn to be human. Hmm. And so you've got to maybe go through inflicting that pain as, you know, as a child or having it inflicted upon you in order to understand that. Okay. So, so if you're following along, um, in the car at home, children are monsters and we need soulless robots to transform them exactly. into humans. Yeah. That, yes. Um, <laughs> and of course, uh, the, the way that uh, adults, I mean, there's, you know, children are watching what adults do. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way uh, that we uh, interact with with robots also uh, has a huge influence. Um, there's a study from uh, Andrew Meltzoff at the University of Washington in Seattle. They did a study about gaze following. And they found that um, infant, like, you know, uh, a robot turns its head and looks at something. Yeah. And then you look to see, oh, what's that robot looking at? Um, like, you wouldn't necessarily do that with a with a um, security camera, just sort of going back and forth. Uh, you wouldn't recognize that as something that had that some sort of right. You wouldn't be like, huh, I wonder what that's looking at. No. Yeah. Uh, but they found that infants would follow the gaze of robots uh, if adults had treated the robots as people. So, um, so you know, if we, if we're, everybody's anthropomorphizing, and then you have you have uh, adult humans treating the robots as if they're, if not humans, at least something on par with a human. Okay. And then you know, children are growing up in that environment. Then. Uh, 
then uh, yeah, it's, it's completely feasible and believable that they would see this robot as something. But yeah, then what happens when it shuts down? Right. That had, I mean, all of a sudden you're traumatized, right? right. So you had mentioned Harry Harlow oh, and yes. some of his studies. And uh, I read the material and I have to say that I'm still a little bit, I'm reeling from it. But I think it's interesting in this context. Yeah. Uh, Harlow, uh, for those of you um, uh, not familiar, this is back in the 50s. And he worked with Reese's monkeys. And he, uh, for instance, one of his experiments that we're not going to go into uh, uh, was called the pit of despair. So that that should tell you a little. These were very controversial experiments because, yeah. like with the the pit of despair, he was just going to try and get cl- like induce clinical depression in uh, Reese's monkeys by putting them in like this horrible little cage with weird walls. It's a chamber, and yeah, yeah. with no absolute all sensory depri- uh, deprivation. Right? Yeah, it was two years. It was technically it was not called the pit of despair in the experiment. <laughs> they referred to it as a vertical chamber apparatus. But that's right. Yeah, and the monkey was hung upside down. Anyway. So, you know, we're dealing maybe with a manic depressive here. Yeah. But he did do some interesting research. Uh, yeah, the the uh, the one involving uh, love, particularly. Uh, there's some cool videos of this, and I'll I'll be sure to put these in into the um, blog post that will accompany this. Um, and you've probably seen clips of this before where he had little baby monkeys, and then he had two fake mama monkeys. Mm-hmm. There's the metal monkey, which just looks like this piece of scrap metal with a sort of monkey looking head and like a single nipple coming out of its chest with full uh, of milk, full right? of milk. Yes. And then there is a, um, a furry mommy, which is, uh, this, this all equally fake looking, um, monkey thing that is, but it's covered in fur. So yeah. it's soft to the touch. And, um, so he was curious as to, as to how, um, you know, how interaction with a mother affected the, uh, the infant's well-being. And isn't this, uh, this sort of came out of this idea too that up until then people thought that the bond between a mother and child was completely, um, nutritive, right? Like the, the child was bonding with the mother because it knew it could get milk. Yeah. So the idea is that you, you, you have this wire mesh creature with milk and it'll bond with it. Yeah. But he found that the babies rarely stayed with the wire model, uh, with a wire monkey longer than it took to get the food it needed. And then it would scuttle off to the, cl- the cloth soft monkey model, um, especially if it were scared mm-hmm. and it would hang out with, with that one most of the time. And yeah. if they switched the nipple to the soft monkey, it wouldn't hang out with the, uh, the metal monkey mom at all. Right. It yeah. was like, I got everything I need right here. Yeah. Okay. And so we've got some obvious parallels with robots coming up. Right. Which, I mean, just to, to throw back to the, uh, to some of the Japanese models we were looking at, you know, it's the, they, they know better than to make a, a, you know, a nursing or babysitting robot that looks like, um, you know, a water heater. Yeah. They're, they're creating them cute. They're creating them, uh, in, in the case of the, um, uh, the, the Reba that lifts, uh, uh that looks like a bear that lifts patients up. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's hands are soft. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, but what happens when, uh, when monkeys are, are raised by these things? He, he did some, uh, some additional studies and, uh, he found that babies raised with real mothers but no playmates were often fearful or inappropriately aggressive. Baby monkeys without playmates or real mothers became socially incompetent and uh, but when and when older were often unsuccessful at mating. And he also found that young monkeys reared with live mothers and young peers easily learned to play and socialize with other young monkeys. Uh, while they, while if you uh, were if you grew up with a cloth monkey, a mm-hmm. fake monkey, uh, 
you were slower, but you seemed to catch up socially uh, by about a year if you were around other monkey okay. babies. But if yeah, you were deprived children. of any interaction with your species, then you were a violent mess. Right. But then again, we have to look at the fact that these were very basic. These were not even robots. These are just the, the, just mimicking. Like right. the, the cloth monkey was just basically mimicking softness. But see, what I think is interesting about this is that if they had the interaction with their species, then they they could have that nuanced communication. Mm-hmm. And again, this this one of the problems with robots, right, is that they don't have the social context and they yeah, can't. Not yet. Right. Not yet. They can't interact with us on a level that's meaningful. So we have this little thing called mirror neurons, and those are activated when people observe an activity. And these neurons resonate as if they were mimicking the activity. So the brain learns about an activity by effectively copying what's going on. And the brain processes the observed actions as if it's doing it itself, right? right. So if I'm a monkey and I'm watching my monkey mother uh do this some this sort of thing uh, in a either a social context or she, maybe she's using a tool to do something. Then I'm able to mimic that in my brain. But I, but but if I'm deprived of that, uh, then I as a monkey am at a great disadvantage. So you look at the obvious parallels here with robots. Yeah, and the, the mimicking thing is uh, is interesting too when you look at the, the again the, the future of socially intelligent machines. Yeah. Um, just as far as it concerns, say more complicated industrial tasks. There's the the idea that you would have a machine learning from a human, mm-hmm. watching the human, observing the human, doing the task and learning it. Or in a surgical situation, a human is using the robot, controlling the robot to conduct a surgery. Right. And if, uh, if a sufficiently advanced machine, a sufficiently socially intelligent machine would learn from those uh, the, those different techniques and maneuvers that the human is using and be able to replicate them, uh, that's that's kind of the, the ultimate goal. And then, and well, not the ultimate goal, but... One of the big goals. Right. Yeah. And once we get there, you know, then we have we have a robot that can learn skills and then and then improve upon them with machine precision. Yeah. And it's interesting that MIT is actually looking at toddlers and the way that they learn and develop and applying that to robots as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, physically, not so much with with emotions right now, mm-hmm. but, you know, we were talking about tracking gaze. They're doing the same thing with robots and trying to figure out how to make that more nuanced for them. Yeah. And it, it comes down to, like, how complex the system is, too. Yeah. Like assembling some, you know, cogs on an, an assembly line, that is, you know, that's going to be so, just so complicated. Yeah. And then surgery, you're, you're dealing with a, with a, you know, a more complicated system, but it's, it's a system. Now, how about child rearing? Like how complex, how nuanced is that system? And then how much, how much effort has to go into it? How much programming has to go into a robot capable of navigating that system and right. dealing with these little monsters that behave so erratically and and may have you know other you know other things influencing their lives well and language is key right Mm -hmm. i mean if anything that's what distinguishes us from uh, creatures um is that we have the ability to communicate with each other that and the clothes that yeah Yeah. clothes clothes are helpful um but and and, you know some creatures do wear clothes i'm I'm not going to go into specifics that's for another podcast are you talking about those tv shows with the monkeys in them because i i think it's hard to argue that that's consensual that they're wearing I don't know. garments. I don't know. Squirrels too. But, um, but language, that's the problem, right? Right. So AI developers, they've been able to, to develop robots physically, but they can't quite figure out how to do this, this mysterious thing, which is to imbibe them with language and to be able to communicate with us. And again, that's why they're looking at toddlers and babies and seeing how their language centers develop. Um, 
And in fact, there's a, a AI specialist, Rajesh Rayo, and he says only by integrating sensations from their own mechanical bodies will robots have a shot at understanding what it means for a chair to be soft and a person to be soft hearted. Hmm. So they they have to have those experiences themselves. I think we've touched on, on this before. How uh, I think maybe it was in the pain podcast about like the the idea of creating robots that can feel pain. Yeah, like I mean, part of that sensation, you would need to create a robot that that can feel something like pain that uh, that that has to uh, that, that that makes a task strenuous if it's strenuous. Um, you know. Yeah, that's right. To have that the, the ability to empathize, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, they're getting closer. There, there's some. Have you heard about the iCub? No. Okay, this is a robot that's a, as tall as a three-year-old. It weighs 50 pounds. It has a child's face. And it's a bear. No. Oh. <laughs> Only the, in your world well, is it a bear. Well, cub. I'm picturing like a small robotic bear. Oh, uh, yeah. It is a little misleading. It's got uh, five-fingered hands. And uh, it's actually under the tutelage right now of a computer scientist, or one of them is, uh, Giorgio Meta mm-hmm. in uh, the Italian Institute of Technology in Genoa. So if you're not seeing the uh, Geppetto and Pinocchio uh, <laughs> similarities here, you, there you go. Um, but when not crawling, iCub can sit up and grasp objects. It possesses the robot- robotic equivalent of sight, hearing, and touch and has a sense of balance. And flexible skin is now in the works for it. Um, the, the idea is that eventually it can talk. And they're, they're getting there again. They're, they're studying patterns and ways that they can try to create the same neural circuitry that we have in terms of mirror neurons mm-hmm. um and it's a super creepy robot <laughs> well that's another thing we have to deal with is the you know the, the whole uncanny valley the idea that yeah. the closer you and and i guess that's why making a cute robot look like a cartoon bear is is far better than trying to make it look like a person because the closer you come to making um an artificial structure or creation look mm-hmm. like a human is the idea that the more creepy it becomes. It's the, yeah, the it, more grotesque it is yeah. because you, we, we can look at it and say there's something wrong with that, right? It's, right. It looks just like me except for it's not me. Um, and, and that's where the alienation comes from. Right. So better off to just make it look like, you know, Yogi Bear and, uh, have it sure. change diapers that way. Sure. But. It's it's interesting, especially after last week's podcast where we talked about love and about like what's going on in the in the mind yeah. with love and like what love is, because we're talking about creating a machine that can essentially like no matter how complicated you you, you talk about the the AI and and uh, and the way it interacts with this, no matter how socially intelligent it is, it is essentially faking it. It's it's yeah. faking. Being human, it's faking its compassion for the, for this child. It's faking its love for the uh, lonely dude who buys, um, you know, the 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 future version of Roxy. Right. You know, they're, it's faking all of these things that are human, and it and it, it's easy to to sort of get on a high horse and about that and be like, oh, this is just this is so disgusting. It's just going to fake all these things that matter mm-hmm. to us. But when you look uh, like at the uh, at, at, at the the neural activity behind the the real organic. Uh, realities of love and compassion, um, or, I mean, it all boils down to kind of things that are fake as well. Right. Uh, because, I mean, it, it comes down to issues of like, all right, well, this organism that we call mom, you know, it just wants to, uh, to carry on its, uh, its genes. It wants to, uh, to eat food and, and, uh, and, you know, it's like there are a number of, of very robotic, robotic tasks. And on top of that, there's this neural complexity that, that creates these things, uh, that we call love and, and uh, and so by by looking at a robot faking, we have to look at how much of it is fake in our lives. In our own well. lives. Yeah. Well, that's interesting you say that because I, I had read something about how uh, 
some programmers at Georgia Tech had given some robots the ability to deceive. Hmm. And I was horrified by that. But you're right. I mean, that's that's a purely human thing, deception. I guess I was just horrified in the fact that you would have a robot that would have that ability. And specifically, they, they programmed it um, in cases of warfare. So if you're on the battlefield and you have the power of deception, you could, you know, successfully hide and mislead the enemy if you are a robot hmm. and also give false information. But take it back down to your robo nanny. You know, do you want your robo nanny to be deceptive? Well, what if the kid asks if Santa Claus is real? Yes. You don't, you don't want the robot to be like, Santa Claus is a cultural construct that means nothing. You know, that <laughs> the kid's crying and then I don't know what happens next. Yeah, but maybe, I mean, what is Robo Nanny doing? I mean, the, the Robo Nanny could then turn to you and say, we had a great afternoon. We did enriching activities and really like Robo Nanny was, you know, watching, watching the soaps. <laughs> you still need a nanny cam. Yeah. Right? To watch the, and the, the nanny cam itself is a robot. You end up with all these right. different levels. Uh, it becomes a quagmire pretty quickly when it you does. start talking about a, a robot-filled future. It's it's a little bit, uh, it's it's dim, right? There are aspects of it that seem kind of dim. But I, I will say that there there um, there's possibilities in terms of teaching children. Yeah, and I mean, lots of children are already. I mean, not that this is a def, this is not necessarily a pro, and to a large extent, it's maybe a negative in some cases. But I mean, children are already. Depending on computers more and more, they're yeah. they're turning to video games and social networking for their their community. So um, you know, this is we're just talking in, in a way an extension of this, right? You know, I think that um, every once in a while, I think we try to figure out like what the next niche thing is, mm-hmm. and I really think that um, robot camps. Robot camps. Yes. For anybody who's who's got the equipment out there, the You mean like a camp where people go and build robots and Yeah, yeah, the you know? Moxie. Yeah. I mean I'm thinking about it. I mean my daughter I, I think I need to enroll her in some AI so she can yeah. control her own. Oh robots. well I mean well they have things like first and all. No, no, so. I'm uh, yeah, but I mean like we're talking like early childhood education here. Like never mind music garden. Okay. You know, I think uh I think we should all aspire to maybe have our children be able to take apart, put together, and manipulate their own robots by hmm. age four. I mean robots are gonna be making all the music anyway, right? So True. Yeah. Yeah. Just, you know, when the technological singularity comes, they're prepared. Yeah. Yeah. So uh you know, I guess what you know, we put it out to you guys to let us know what you think about the prospect of future generations being raised by robots, babysitted by robots. Um, if anybody out there was raised by a robot, let us know. I don't know. It's yeah. possible some, you know, secluded uh, uh, family situation where dad's a mad scientist and and uh, and mom is uh, addicted to the home shopping network and isn't all that available. Or if some documents have recently become declassified and you can speak about it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, but let us know. Send us those documents. And speaking of which, I do have one uh, listener mail to read here, and this comes from Caitlin. And uh, Caitlin writes, Hey, Robert, love the podcast. As an English teacher, I often recommend it to my adult students to train their ear to the American accent, <laughs> which uh, is kind of funny. Yeah. Um, but hey, uh, <laughs> Caitlin is uh, writing to us from Madrid, Spain, by the right. way. She continues, just writing because something occurred to me today as I was listening to you talk about terraforming uh, in the beginning of the Werewolf Principle podcast where we talk about engineering humans for space. I'm sure you have read Kim Stanley Robinson's excellent Red Mars, Green Mars, Blue Mars trilogy, but there are so many times when I expect to hear you bring it up, and you don't. You have read it, right? 
All of Rob- Robinson's work is excellent, but the Mars Trilogy is probably the best work of fiction I've read of any genre. I really enjoy your book recommendations, especially since I got a Kindle, and thanks to you, I've decided to read some more uh, Ian Banks. Although, after reading The Wasp Factory, I was a bit turned off, but it was his first work, or one of his early works, right? And I've been told later works are more different. Uh, keep up the good work, both of you. Uh, so, first of all, I do have to admit that I have not read uh, the Mars Trilogy. Tsk, tsk. Yeah, it's it's been on the list for a while, but I yeah. I have the habit of finding authors I like, and then I like, compulsively read that author till I either read everything they've written or I just get really sick of them. Yeah, which. You know, is is good when I'm onto a, a good author, but it means I'm not necessarily getting to some of these other works that I should read. Yeah. And uh, as for Banks' uh, work, yeah, Wasp Factory uh, was his first novel, and uh, it is uh, is rather different than his sci-fi. It's it's a rather dark story about really really messed up Scottish family uh, that lives uh, on the beach. And uh, huh. it's more of a, it's like sort of a psychological horror kind of a thing. But uh, his uh, his later books are a lot different. They're the sci-fi books that I've been talking about. Okay. And, uh, so if one were to pick up their first uh, Ian M. Banks uh, sci-fi book, I would say uh, The Player of Games is probably a good uh, starting point. Cool. So, Kaylin, thanks for writing us. And for the rest of you, if you uh, have anything you want to share with us, uh, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter, both as Blow the Mind. Uh, we regularly update that feed with uh, cool links to uh, How Stuff Works stuff, as well as uh, uh, curios from uh, throughout the web. And you can also drop us a line at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.